Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we have the great privilege of talking with another author who uh, decides to humble himself and come talk with uh, two lowly people who haven't written a book in their life, but uh, have read it instead. And uh, we welcome to the show uh, Dr. James Anderson. And uh, just kind of give you a little bit of his pedigree here is that uh, Dr. Anderson hails from Edinburgh, Scotland, and has completed an MA in philosophy and apologetics earned a PhD in computer simulation and PhD in philosophical theology. His research has explored the paradoxical nature of certain Christian doctrine and the implication for the rationality of the Christian faith. The presuppositionalism of Cornelius Van Til and the advocacy of the transcendental argument or tag as it's lovingly called. He is an ordained minister in the associate Reformed Presbyterian church, a professor of theology and philosophy at reformed theological seminary, Charlotte. He's married and with uh, three kids is also the author of the book we recently went through, Why Should I Believe Christianity?, which is part of a 10-part Christian apologetic series that addresses 10 commonly asked questions about God, the Bible, and Christianity. You can find many of his papers and musing at his website, Analytical Thoughts, at prognosco.com, which is uh, uh, Greek for foreknowledge. And so we welcome Dr. Anderson to the show. Thank you for coming on and talking to us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, uh, uh, Big fan. I've, I've seen a lot of your your interviews. I've read a lot of your works. Have uh, t- taken a lot of your um, uh, your uh, bigger bigger head uh, uh, works and tried to work through it and gone back and highlighted, gone back again, and highlighted again. So I appreciate uh, the the brain exercises uh, uh, for someone lowly <laughs> like me who's who's trying to who's trying to understand um, uh, logic and uh, uh, transcendental arguments and Van Til. Uh, so th- thank you for, for your work. Well, I'm glad it's been helpful. <laughs> so I, I, in, in reading your qualifications there, uh, I have to ask, what, what do you do for fun? <laughs> what do I do for fun? Yeah. Uh, I, um, I, I, I enjoy exercise uh, more than I actually used to. I've sort of grown into enjoying exercise over the years. Um, I enjoy hiking with my family. Uh, I enjoy uh, watching movies with my kids and then giving them lectures afterwards on the worldview behind the movie until they cry uncle. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and those are a few of the things that I enjoy doing. I do a little bit of um, computer coding on the side just to keep my hand in. Just to make sure that uh, your, your doctorate there is uh, getting its money worth. That's right. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> want that, that, that PhD to go completely to waste. Well, uh, with a number of our authors uh, who we read on the show, we've seen them have previous backgrounds in something completely different than philosophy and apologetics. We had uh, like Dr. Mitch Stokes or Dr. Jason Lyle. We had uh, Pastor Tiberius Rada, to just name a few. Uh, what was the catalyst from going from kind of that computer simulation to Christian uh, philosopher? And did any ideas kind of carry through from your previous work to today's work? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so I, I started my my university career in um, basically in engineering, electronic and electrical engineering. That was my bachelor's degree, um, but found I wasn't a hardware guy. You know, I, I was still picking up the wrong end of the soldering iron after <laughs> four years. So um, I sort of went software and uh, got a job in a research department exploring virtual reality technologies and other sort of what was called then interface research and. Um, uh, it was a, a lot of software coding, but it was around about that time. I got very interested in, in Christian apologetics because I was working at a secular university with some very, very smart people 
who were also unbelievers. And uh, they would ask me questions about my, my Christian faith. And uh, some of them I could answer, some of them I couldn't. So I would go off and do my research and try and come back with answers and, and, and just generally um, started taking those sort of uh, intellectual foundational aspects of my faith far more seriously and got bitten by the apologetics bug. Probably you guys can relate to this as well. Once you start reading, you, you start devouring more and more material. Um, that sort of brought me into, well, it didn't directly bring me into Reformed theology, but I was doing a lot of reading in theology at the same time, and, and that sort of uh, got me into Reformed theology. And, uh, and then I discovered presuppositional apologetics and Van Til, and um, I was doing so much reading and studying off my own back at that point that I thought maybe I should do um, a degree to try and you know, get some sort of qualification out of it. Maybe the Lord could use that in the church in some way. Um, and uh, But it, eventually I, I sensed a calling to teach in that field and realized that I would need to get a, a PhD in a, in a, in a relevant area. Uh, PhD in computer simulation wasn't going to really help me uh, in teaching Christian philosophy and apologetics, um, at least not directly. And so I, I did a, a PhD in philosophical theology at the University of Edinburgh, and, uh, and then in the Lord's Providence, uh, ended up teaching um, philosophy and apologetics at Reformed um, at Theological Seminary, where I am now. And when I tell people that I used to be in computing and engineering, and now I'm in philosophy, apologetics, and theology, they think that that's a, a big leap, and in some respects, of course, it is. But I'm I'm wired uh, to be a analytical thinker. I'm I'm very very uh, left-brained. I think is what they call it now, where you know you want everything to be systematic and logically ordered and so forth. And of course, that was important in computing. Um, if you don't have a logical mind, then the sort of computer code you're going to write is not going to work very well. It's all about logical operators and conditional statements and so forth. And um, so in a sense, I was, I was keeping my, my natural skill set, such as it was, but applying it to a different topic, um, namely uh, thinking about God, thinking about the Bible, thinking about the Christian faith. So, so that's why I sort of landed in philosophical theology because I have a, a philosophical mind, I think, but my real interest is in theology. Um, I'm interested in philosophy insofar as it can serve as a as a handmaiden to theology and to um, apologetics, which I see as a subdiscipline of theology. Very, very uh, Van Til and Bonson of you. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Nice. So you, so it sounds like it's just you Augustinian. Were... I think it's, I think it's just Augustinian. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no, it's, it's, it's Pauline. I should say. Yeah, we, we could all, we could all trace our, our, our shoots back there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sounds we like you so. were already a believer when you uh, started in the university, and, um, and so the, you know, and so already being a believer and then being challenged on your faith, it sounds like is what yeah. kind of made you take the leap here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, uh, I I was raised in a Christian home. Um, I, I I don't remember a time when I I didn't believe the central tenets of the Christian faith. Although I may have entertained doubts and had a lot of questions, as a lot of people do. But it really wasn't until my teenage years that I started taking my faith seriously in the sense of, if this is really true, I need to be all in. 
Uh, I, there needs to be a personal commitment here. And um, there was a particular um, time uh, in my teenage years where, where the sort of existential personal dimensions of the Christian faith were, were really uh, presented to me in a forceful manner. Um, and so when I went to university, there was, there was a period of, I think, stagnation, both spiritual and intellectual stagnation. And again, this is not an uncommon experience, um, but through a number of God-ordained factors, uh, what we might call means of grace, I was brought back into uh, the life of the church and fellowship with God's people and sitting under the preaching of God's word. And uh, I, I would argue I've, I've never really looked back ever since. So apologetics for me wasn't the instrument by which I came to faith. I think that's actually more the exception than the rule for people who say it was through Christian apologetics that I was converted, although I, I know plenty of people for whom that's true. But in, in my case, it was um, a sort of byproduct of taking seriously the Christian life of the mind and trying to integrate my intellectual instincts and philosophical aptitudes with what I took to be the sober truth about reality, about God, about the world, and about my, my place in it all. Um, Arthur Herman has a book called uh, How the Scots Invented the, the Modern World, and in there he kind of um, presents the historical overview that um, Scotland was the first modern literacy, uh, literary society in Europe, uh, first lending library in Europe as well. Um, th th there are so many Scots that kind of come out of the country and, and are well known. Uh, I'm not asking you to apologize for, for David Hume, but what, uh, what, 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 made you, what made you come off the aisles and, and, and uh, join us here in America? Well, the first thing I have to say is that I, I'm, I'm not actually a Scotsman. Uh, you know, the, the, the no true Scotsman fallacy. Well, that I'm, I'm the embodiment of it because a lot of people assume because I moved from Scotland that I, I am Scottish. I'm actually English by birth. My parents are English and I lived the first part of my life in England, but then moved to Scotland as a, a, as a, a youth and um, spent 23 years there, met my wife, had my first two children there. So, so uh, in many respects, I feel um, Scottish, at least Scottish by, by marriage and by osmosis, maybe. Um, like a true Englishman. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I describe myself as British because uh, that's, that's really how I, I see myself, mm. although I'm now American citizen, so I guess I'm a British American if there is such a hyphenization of it. Um, uh, but I, I, we moved here, we believe, because we were following the Lord's call for me to serve in, in a teaching capacity. Um, when I completed my PhD in philosophical theology, uh, I was looking for a position where I might be able to teach. Um, I wanted, ideally, to teach at a reformed institution where um, I could teach freely according to reformed convictions and would be held accountable uh, for, for holding to that confessional reform position, uh, but also a place that was, was serving the church and um, saw the importance of apologetics as part of a well-rounded um, seminary curriculum. Um, and uh, RTS was that place, uh, and uh, I'm very, very... <laughs> Very glad. I mean, we, we've never looked back. It, it, the transition wasn't easy, relocating your family 
from one side of the Atlantic to another. It's not something I would ever want to go through a second time. Um, but the Lord was good, and uh, we, we feel very blessed to be here. Yeah. Uh, it's all the books that you have to pack up. That, that's, the, that's the problem. Oh, the books, the books, yeah. Um, well, and, and uh, yeah, I've, I appreciate uh, RTS, and um, they have apps, and, and um, check out their websites, which we'll include links below for just amazing content. And uh, I've, I made a, 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 a homage to, uh, to um, uh, Michael J. Kruger uh, because I mentioned his name and his book so many times uh, when we were going through uh, Andreas Kostenberger's uh, um, book uh, before yours. Um, and so uh, I've, I've come to appreciate uh, RTS a lot. Yeah, great book, great book. Um, you've, you've come to be known and well-respected for your work with transcendental argumentation, which is probably kind of the biggest supporting idea to Vantillian presuppositionalism. Uh, could you kind of give us a kind of a skyscraper elevator pitch for TAG and why uh, it's such an important concept of presuppositionalists or really of any uh, apologist uh, could use? Yeah, so um, presuppositionalism as an apologetic methodology is often associated with this idea of a transcendental argument. And uh, it was Cornelius Van Til, who's often seen as a pioneer of presuppositionalism, who really focused attention on the idea of arguing for God in a, in a transcendental way. Um, the, 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 the distinctive insight of the transcendental argument is that the existence of God, and Van Til would maintain not just any God, but specifically the God revealed in Scripture, the existence of the biblical God is a, is a presupposition of all rational thought and experience. In other words, um, Van Til used the analogy of a, a house and the foundations of a house, and I, I know you're familiar with it, but maybe not all your listeners are, but... Um, Van Til argued that any, any house needs to have some sort of foundations that are holding it up. There needs to be something there. There has to be something that exists to serve as the foundation to hold up the house. And he argued, and this was the idea of the transcendental argument, that the house of human knowledge has foundations. And those foundations are narrowly the existence of God, but more broadly, the truth of the Christian worldview, that is what, what uh, Christianity teaches about God, about creation, about the nature of human beings and our place within the creation, and various other aspects of the Christian faith, uh, such that if, if Christian theism were not true, then knowledge would be impossible. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to know anything, we wouldn't be able to have rational thought, we wouldn't be able to formulate coherent ideas, uh, make propositional truth claims. So the house of human knowledge rests upon the existence of the God of the Bible. Um, that's the core idea. Now, turning that into an argument requires a bit more work. And uh, Van Til, uh, I think, um, sketched out a number of ways that you could make that argument. And what I've said in a few places is that although we speak about the transcendental argument or tag, um, actually tag is more uh, like a family of arguments or an argumentative project um, in which there are different ways of teasing out the, the, uh, the fact that, that human knowledge and rationality rests upon the existence of God or presupposes the existence of God. There are actually a number of different ways of making the argument. And I've, I've um, 
tried to develop some of those ways in my writings, but actually there's a, there's a lot of scope. And if you look at how presuppositionalists have made the argument, if you look at someone like John Frame, for example, or Greg Barnson, they've each got their own distinctive formulations of the argument or their way of arguing transcendentally for God. But I think what's distinctive about TAG, as opposed to uh, more what we might call more traditional theistic arguments, is that uh, traditional the- theistic arguments start by assuming something else that we know and trying to infer or deduce uh, God's existence from that. As, as Van Til puts it, they start at one place in reality and try to lead you to another place in reality. So, for example, um, the cosmological argument starts with the, the sheer existence of the universe or the existence of any contingent being and seeks to infer or deduce from that the existence of God as a necessary being, a necessary first cause. And generally speaking, that's what most theistic arguments do. But what the transcendental argument tries to do is go deeper and say, uh, what is necessary for us to have any knowledge at all? Rather than simply, well, we, we know this, so based on that, we can also know this about the existence of God or the attributes of God. Um, the, the transcendental argument, we might say, is, is digging even deeper and asking what must be true, what must be the case for us to know anything at all, for knowledge to even be possible in the first place. Yeah, so it's almost like um, um, the transcendental argument forces, let's say, the unbeliever um, to kind of, um, well, it doesn't allow them to cheat, right? In other words, it doesn't allow them to start with something in order to get get somewhere. And uh, right, am I am I hearing that right? Yeah. It, yes. Yeah, because of course, if you're um, if you're engaged in a discussion or a debate with a with an unbeliever, you want to reason. You want to be a rational person. You want to seek the truth. You want to to employ rational methods to employ reason responsibly in order to to establish what the truth is um but that reason itself isn't uh, isn't a free lunch you know they say there's, there's no such thing as a free lunch and uh and reason itself isn't autonomous and independent in other words it's not the sort of thing that you can just appeal to in a worldview neutral or worldview independent way so uh what Van Til's argument is saying, in effect, is that that reason isn't isn't a neutral, a freebie that that anyone with any worldview can just appeal to as uh, as as a, as a as a neutral authority, but rather reason itself requires some account, some worldview to account for why there is this thing, reason, and why the, why we are able to use it to to evaluate truth claims and determine what the truth is. So, uh, again, some methods in apologetics tend to simply take reason for granted and say, look, we all know what reason is. We all respect reason. So let's just start with reason and apply reason and see where it leads us. There's nothing wrong with that in principle. But what uh, the transcendental argument is doing is saying, well, hold on a minute. Why can we assume this thing reason in the first place? Why can we just take this reason for for granted? Isn't it actually the case that certain things must be true, that the world must be a certain way, that reality must be a certain way in order for there to be this thing reason? And, of course, we we need to talk more about what we mean when we talk about reason. Mm -hmm. But reason itself 
requires deeper foundations to go beyond human reason uh, alone. So, so would you, uh, it's so that the transcendental argument, would you say, um, gives a metaphysical basis for why we can have epistemological, you know, knowledge or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. What it's trying to do is to find uh, or to, to um, expose the metaphysical preconditions of our epistemological assumptions. Okay. So if we, everyone assumes a certain epistemology, of course, some people think very, you know, carefully about their epistemology. They, they, they're self-conscious about their epistemology. Other people, it's more more in the background. They, they just have assumptions about what knowledge is, how we know things, how we evaluate truth claims. But what a transcendental argument tries to do, uh, at least I think the way the Van Til conceived of it, at any rate, is to ask what are the metaphysical preconditions or the metaphysical foundations of our epistemological assumptions. So which, which uh, and there's various approaches, because you, you, we, we, uh, we noticed that in your book, you talk about morality, you talk about values, you talk about reason, which one you think, uh, well, which one do you like best or which one do you, uh, do you think is most effective? <laughs> yeah, and it's good that you distinguish those two questions, because there's, there's the arguments that I like the most, but then there are the arguments that I think uh, are, tend to be more effective in practice. So. I'll start with the the like. Uh, I am very fond of uh, what I call the argument from logic, and I've I've written on this. Um, it's really sort of um, captured my imagination and my um, ambitions to try and spell it out in a rigorous way. And the argument from logic is the argument that uh, that if there are laws of logic, and if the laws of logic are really as we understand them to be or assume them to be. Then, then God must exist to be the metaphysical foundation of those laws of logic. And there's, there's a lot of steps you need to fill in, of course, to get to that conclusion. But I, I've written on that. I think it's, um, I think it's an intriguing argument. I think it's, it's, it's powerful. Um, uh, I, I, I think it can be worked out in a pretty rigorous way that um, even philosophers who aren't Christians can respect and, and want to grapple with it. Um, but that, because that's, that, that's the paper that I did the, all the highlighting on. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that, yeah, that was a paper. I can't even remember when it, when it, uh, came out. was it 2011, 12, uh, I, I, I lose track. Um, but that, that, that was actually co-authored with, um, a colleague and a good friend of mine, Greg Welty, mm-hmm. who, uh, his own research actually has really done all the heavy lifting in that argument because, um, his his uh, doctoral thesis was on was a defense of uh, theistic conceptual realism. That is the idea that abstract objects such as propositions uh, and possible worlds are best understood as as divine concepts or divine ideas. Um, it's a very Augustinian uh, um, theory, um, but uh, Greg has worked it out with uh, a lot of analytical rigor um, and sort of lying behind the argument from logic is is a broader argument about abstract objects and, and how uh, God is a necessary foundation for abstract objects but uh, you know that that argument is uh, isn't everyone's cup of tea because it requires um, talking about some uh, 
somewhat technical uh, metaphysical concepts. And uh, uh, if you if you have some familiarity with analytic philosophy, you can get up to speed with it pretty quickly. But I found that even even very smart people who just aren't familiar with the metaphysical terminology and the, the, the literature on abstract objects and ways in which philosophers distinguish between different kinds of abstract objects and the terminology, they can, they can either very quickly get lost or frustrated or um, dismissive of the argument. They think it's, you know, sort of some sort of philosophical cup and ball trick and, uh, and they don't take it, take it seriously. And so, um, although I think it is a very serious argument and there are um, non-Christian philosophers who take it very seriously, uh, it's not one that I reach for immediately in an average apologetic conversation because um, it, it requires quite a bit of explanation and, and defense just to get people to even understand what the argument is, never mind evaluate it. Um, so in terms of more, more practical uh, arguments, uh, as, as I think many presuppositionalists do, we uh, tend to begin with the, the moral argument, or at least um, I say the moral argument, they're actually there's no such thing, I think, as the moral argument per se. There, there are different versions of it, different ways of starting with some uh, aspect of our moral knowledge or moral discourse and showing how that, that presupposes the existence of God. But in general, I think the, the moral argument um, is more effective because in the first place, um, people care about morality. They, they, they have moral opinions. They may not be the same as my moral opinions, and often they aren't, but nonetheless, they they want to make moral judgments, and often they're taking for granted that those moral judgments are, are objective. They're not just matters of personal preference or subjective desires or purposes, but there really is uh, a sort of um, a set of objective moral norms that govern human behavior. And uh, since most people recognize that, then, then that gives you a foothold for making the argument that you need a, a, a theistic universe, you need a theistic worldview in order to really account for objective moral norms and objective moral uh, duties in particular. There are different ways of cashing out the, the argument. But, um, and I think uh, a lot of people intuitively recognize that, um, that if there is a God, then that very easily explains why there would be objective norms of morality, why certain things would be right and certain things are wrong, because God would have created us, he would have had a plan for us, he would have had intentions. God's, God's act of creation itself seems to establish that there's, there are some norms. There's, there's a way for us to live and a way for us not to live. Um, and also, once you sort of conjure up in your mind an, an atheistic universe that's, that everything um, just reduces to material particles, whether that's, you know, what, whatever standard physics says uh, is the basic material substrate or particles these days. But if it is uh, an, an ultimately impersonal material universe, it's very hard to see where any kind of objective moral norms come from, what kind of authority they would have, if any. Um, it's, an, it's an impersonalist right. world. So how view. can you get impersonal 
Right. Uh, right. Out of, I mean, personal out of the impersonal, right, is the, the, the right. idea there. Yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah. it combines the, the software with the hardware. It, it gives you the, <laughs> yeah. the moral basis for the, the, the meat shields that we are. Yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. Uh, and and you know, a, lot, a lot of people can see quite easily that um, moral, moral injunctions or moral norms need some sort of personal uh, grounding. Okay, a, a person can issue commands. You have duties to other people, but you don't have duties to an impersonal universe. So uh, in my experience, um, people with no philosophical background or training can, can, can see that point um, can appreciate that point fairly fairly quickly, and um, and so it tends to be a more accessible argument. Um, that doesn't mean that you, you it's easy to make that argument, or that or there aren't uh, various objections that you need to be able to field if you're making that argument. Um, but often, then that um, that moral argument can be used as a as a um, a launch pad for a more transcendent. Uh, transcendental form of argument in that once you recognize that that moral norms depend on the existence of God, it's not such a jump to see that rational norms or intellectual norms depend on the existence of God as well. In other words, if morality is about um, the right way to behave, that there's a right way to behave and a wrong way to behave, uh, rationality is about thought, norms of thought. There's a right way to think, a wrong way to think, a right way to draw conclusions, and a wrong way to draw conclusions. And so there's a, there's actually a, a parallel, I think, between um, certain, certain versions of the moral argument and uh, what would more properly be regarded as a transcendental argument from rational norms. Okay. One one more before, because I know Patrick <laughs> wants to jump in and start talking to you about the book. That well, we, I mean, I don't mind talking know. about tag. <laughs> yeah. the, the, uh, and I, I will say I'll include, um, uh, you, you did some great uh, work with Eli Alice on uh, revealed apologetics um, that I'll include in, in the links as well for more discussion on tag too. Yeah. So just, you know, the big, um, um, and I'd just be curious to how you, you know, you, uh, you kind of uh, react to the claim that it's circular, right? That, that the whole thing is just a circular project and you, you have to, you know, how, you know, you have to assume something in order to get something and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with that, that kind of objection. So how's, uh, yeah. how, how would you say the best way to handle that kind of thing is? Well, I think uh, there, there, there are two ways to handle it. Uh, one is to observe that uh, everybody is going to be uh, circular when it comes to their ultimate epistemological authority. So if, if, if you have some ultimate criteria for, uh, for truth claims or some ultimate authority to which you appeal to settle disputes over truth claims, then in order to defend that authority itself, you are at some level going to have to appeal to that authority, whether that is divine revelation, whether that is human reason. I mean, if you're a rationalist, then then some conception of reason is going to be your ultimate authority. But in order to defend reason, you're going to have to appeal to reason. If you appeal to something else, you wouldn't really be a rationalist after all. Likewise, uh, an empiricist. An empiricist is someone who wants to appeal to human experience uh, as the ultimate judge of truth claims. But the empiricist, in order to defend, defend empiricism, has to appeal to experience if he's going to be 
consistent. So, so when we're talking about um, ultimate authorities, particularly ultimate epistemological authorities, there's, there's an unavoidable circularity that's going to be involved. But the, the other thing I would say is that a transcendental argument isn't circular in the way that um, a, 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 a fallaciously circular argument is. In other words, it doesn't, um, it isn't a question-begging argument. A question-begging argument would be something like um, the, Bible, the Bible says that it's God's word, um, God's word is always true, therefore the Bible must be God's word. You know, that sort of viciously, narrowly circular appeal to the Bible. The Bible says it's God's word, and because it says it's God's word, it must be God's word. You know, that's, that's obviously not a good argument. It's not an argument that's going to persuade uh, anyone. But a transcendental argument uh, doesn't do that. Uh, a transcendental argument uh, asks the question, what are the preconditions of argument itself? Okay, if if we are able to make any kind of argument, what does our ability to make arguments presuppose? What does what does argumentation in general presuppose? Um, and then once you've figured out what the conclusion of that is, once you've exposed the presuppositions of argument, well, of course, the transcendental arguments only going to be possible because of those presuppositions. In other words, a transcendental argument in the nature of the case has to presuppose its conclusion because its conclusion is exposing the presuppositions of all argumentation, not just the transcendental argument. So there is a sort of deep, profound circularity to a transcendental argument in that it has to presuppose its conclusion in order to be cogent. But that it isn't deriving its conclusion from a premise, a hidden premise. It isn't uh, starting with its conclusion as a premise and then deducing the conclusion from it, which is what a, a fallaciously circular argument typically does. So another way to defend it is to say, uh, look, transcendental arguments um, have a kind of a deep circularity to them, but it's not a fallacious circularity. And actually, secular philosophers who write on transcendental arguments recognize this, but they still take transcendental arguments seriously. And there's a vast literature on transcendental arguments. Um, if they were just obviously question-begging, then no one would take them seriously, whether they're a Christian writer or a non-Christian writer. So... Um, there's a number of, number of ways of, of dealing with that. One is to say that at some level, everybody has to be circular. Another is to uh, explain what kind of circularity is involved in the transcendental argument and distinguishing that from the narrowly, viciously circular kind of um, circularity that, uh, that I just gave an example of. Yeah, good. Thanks. Uh, and I'll, I'll include links to the, the paper that you co-authored as well. Uh, if people want to kind of, uh, getting scrum of 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 that type of uh, um, uh, apologetic paper. Is there a, a, a book or a, a paper that uh, you would recommend for those who want to start looking at more of of tag and and uh, kind of what 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 uh, what's the best resource that we can pick up and start delving yeah. into? Yeah, there's no. Um there's no tag for dummies book <laughs> that I'm that I'm aware of, or at least that I would that I would recommend. I mean, I think there's a, um, a lot of folk out there who sort of put out popular level books on, on, on tag. My my recommendation would be really um, 
two two books, both of which lean heavily on Van Til's writings and understanding of, We're of okay transcendental that. arguments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a feature. It's not a bug. Um, <laughs> And th- those would be uh, Greg Barnson's book, Van Til's Apologetic, uh, which is about a lot, it covers a lot more than the transcendental argument. Mm-hmm. But I think um, Barnson understood what Van Til was trying to do with the transcendental argument as well as anyone. I don't know anyone uh, who surpasses um, their under- uh, Barnson and his understanding of what Van Til was trying to accomplish with the transcendental argument. So, um, certainly the sections in that book that talk about transcendental arguments um, are going to be very helpful. Uh, that book, by the way, uh, and again, I'm sure you guys know, but others may not, is a selection of readings from Van Til with extensive commentary and explanation, exposition from, from Barnson, who was a, a student of Van Til's and a, a very, very um, accomplished Christian apologist in his own right. So that would be the first book. Um, and then the other book is uh, John Frame's book, Apologetics. It was the first edition was entitled Apologetics to the Glory of God. The second edition was renamed Apologetics and Justification of Christian Belief. Um, and Frame um, discusses the transcendental argument. He, he doesn't land where Barnson does, and actually he takes issue with some of Van Til's claims. And I don't agree personally with everything that Frame says about the transcendental argument, but it will, it's, it's nonetheless a useful entry point to the discussions by someone who is very sympathetic to Van Til's apologetic project and, and committed to the, the, the core convictions of it, uh, and yet is an independent enough thinker that he can make some criticisms that will make you think a little a little harder about the transcendental argument. Well, I don't know if you know, but you have to recommend only people that you 100% agree with. And so that, that's what we're doing <laughs> these days. No, yeah, I, and, yeah. I, and I appreciate that, 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 that shows a very uh, Christian humility in there as well. Um, but we have to talk about the book that we just got done yeah. with because yeah. it did generate a lot of discussion uh, with even in the YouTube comments. I, I, I referred uh, to a, a lot of your extended work as well, a lot of your uh, interviews. Um, we enjoyed reading the book, uh, Why Should I Believe Christianity?, which is part of this larger series of books, these, these 10, 10 big questions to, to ask. Could you tell us kind of why you wrote this book in particular, uh, you with, with this book in particular, and then um, mm. why you spearheaded th- this 10-part uh, series? Well, that's, uh, there's, a, there's a long story to tell, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and give the abbreviated version. So uh, a number of years ago, actually, too many years that I really want to think about. Um, the publisher, Christian Focus, uh, approached me and asked if I would be willing to serve as the co-editor, the series editor, um, for a, a series that would be called the Big Ten series. I'm not sure at what point that, that series title appeared, but the, the original conception was a series of books that would address some of the major questions or concerns that are raised by educated, thoughtful unbelievers, skeptics of the Christian faith, um, that would serve not only as uh, books that could be given to an, an unbeliever to engage seriously with their with their doubts, with their critical questions, and would be accessible 
to people who aren't biblically literate and probably don't understand the Christian faith very well. So they're not going to assume a lot of background knowledge or, or biblical uh, knowledge. Um, but it would also serve as useful resources for, for Christians who want to just improve their you know, apologetic skills and, and, and have answers that they can give when these questions come up. And so uh, I and the, and the uh, initial co-editor of the series did some sort of informal polling of um, unbelievers that we knew, you know, thoughtful, serious-minded people, but not, not Christian believers, about what, what are the major questions or major objections you have. In short, um, you're not a Christian. Why not? What, what's stopping you becoming a Christian? What are some of the concerns you have? And, uh, of course, you've you got the problem of evil. You've got issues to do with science. Um, you've got, um, uh, well, Christians are just badly behaved. Uh, they're just bad adverts for their faith. <laughs> Um, the question of hell, and, and on and on. And so we, we got a, an initial list of questions that we wanted these books to address, and we wanted to get people to write them who actually knew what they were talking about, had some expertise uh, in that area, but also were able to communicate, because, of course, there are many people who are experts in their field, but they are you know so massively brained that they, they can't communicate clearly to mere mortals like you and I. So... <laughs> Uh, we, we wanted to find authors who would fit that profile, who could, who could make a, a rigorous argument, give, give intellectually respectful answers, but also um, speak the language that uh, your average unbeliever, if there is such a thing, would be able to understand and appreciate. And we, we whittled down the initial list to, to 10 that we thought were worth focusing on. Um, but one of the things that I realized early on in the series is that while most of the, most of the um, books were addressing a fairly narrow question and in a defensive mode, so for example, um, how, could, uh, how could there be an all-good, all-powerful God with so much evil and suffering in the world? That is, that is posed as, an, as a particular objection to the Christian faith, and so the kind of apologetics that you need for that is what, what John Frame calls defensive apologetics. So if someone makes an objection, you want to give an answer to explain why that's not a reason. That's actually not a good reason to reject the Christian faith. And, and most of the uh, books in that series were going to fit that profile. They were going to be addressing a, an objection or a criticism and giving a defense of Christianity in face of that. And I thought that there would be a need for at least one book to make a more positive case for the Christian faith. Um, what, again, I'm appealing to John Frame's distinctions here. He distinguishes between um, proof, defense, and offense in apologetics. So proof is sort of making a positive case. Here are, here are the positive reasons to believe the Christian faith. Defense is answering objections, and offense is going on the offensive against non-Christian systems of thought, whether secular or, or non-Christian religions. And I thought there needs to be at least one book in the series that is making a positive case for the Christian faith. It's not going to be comprehensive by any means, because one of the features of this book was that they had to be relatively short, less than couple hundred pages, although I think maybe in the end my, <laughs> my book went a little over that. But, um, you know, the sort of book that someone's not going to dismiss and say, oh, I'm sorry, that's just too long, I don't have time to read that. Um, but insofar as it's possible to make at least an introductory case, positive case for the Christian worldview, 
I wanted to see if if that were possible. And I thought that's something I would like to do for myself. I, I would like to have a book that I could give to someone when they say, why should I believe this crazy religion of yours? Um, why, you know, what, no, no one in our age today who's intellectually serious could, could believe the, these outlandish claims of the, the Christians made in the Bible makes. Well, I wanted to be able to say, no, here's, here's, here are the basic reasons why this worldview not only makes sense, but I suggest ultimately it's the only worldview that, that can make sense of the things that we take for granted in our day-to-day lives, whether that be um, human dignity or moral norms or our ability to, to know the truth, um, to have purpose in life and so forth. So um, I, being, being the editor, of course, I, I exercised my editorial privilege and right. uh, recruited <laughs> myself to write that book. Um, uh, but it wasn't quite that simple. I, you know, I had to get other people to agree to it. But it was, it was something that I thought I would like to do. Uh, it would be a nice challenge. Um, uh, there was no equivalent book that I could just point to and say, here's what I recommend. So I thought I would try to, to write it myself. And also, many of these books that that make a case for the Christian faith typically follow a, a classical or evidentialist methodology, either explicitly or implicitly. And I wanted to, to do it in a way that I thought was more consistent with presuppositionalism, that didn't compromise the doctrine of Scripture, that didn't um, compromise the doctrine of God, that made a case in a in a integrated worldview fashion, and that's why in the book, and I bet you've discussed this in, in some of your episodes on this. That's why I um, I actually lay out the Christian worldview in a in a summary form before I give any of the reasons for believing it. I just want I think that the best way to defend the Christian worldview is first of all to explain what it really is and why why it has this internal cohesion and coherence to it before you offer what might be regarded as external reasons or or, or um, uh, other grounds on which one might believe this worldview to be true. Yeah, and when we were going through the book, uh, what we thought was going to take one episode because, oh, we, 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 know, we know the Christian worldview, we know sin and resurrection and uh, all that jazz. Uh, it took us three episodes. It's the most amount of episodes we've done on a chapter. Okay. But I, I think it's also because we love the subject so much because, you know, it's, you know, the saving gospel of, of, of you know, the yeah. Bible. So, yeah. so uh, we had a lot of fun talking about this. And uh, we also enjoyed how you start the, uh, the book saying, believe true things. It's good to believe true things. Christianity is true. Uh, therefore believe Christianity. So we, we, yeah. we enjoyed, we enjoyed that, uh, uh, um, kind of in your face, uh, Oh, of course, but also good to state it. And in my, yeah. um, uh, in our positive review, uh, for the book that, uh, anybody can find on Goodreads, uh, we post a lot of our reviews there. Um, I say, this is a book that you pick up off the shelf and hand to either a new believer or someone questioning. And it's, it's really, especially that, that middle chapter of what are the kind of the major tenets of the Christian worldview I mean that that middle chapter is is uh, one of the best ones that I, I've read on a, a, a book that I can give to somebody that's not okay. Let's talk about the book of Judges and go through you know yeah. Deborah, yeah. Which, which you know I love Deborah too, but uh, uh, maybe yeah. less uh, tent post and and less stakes. Well, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. That's very gratifying because that that was always the aim 
to write a book that a, a person would feel comfortable, even enthusiastic about handing to a, a, an unbeliever and saying, you know, here's, here's a basic introduction and defense of the Christian faith. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to be a conversation ender. It's going to be a conversation starter. Yeah. But I, I hope that minimally any non-Christian who reads this book will at least come away understanding what Christianity really is. They, they may not embrace it, but they, they hopefully won't have any excuse for not understanding what, what the core claims of the Christian faith really are. So in, 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 in the book, you talk about Christianity being a worldview. And, and like we said, that, that's, that's a, a, a big chapter, one that we did uh, multiple episodes on because it's so important. And you talk um, about, and, and presuppositionists uh, point this out too, is that Christianity is a worldview. And to, to kind of section it off and say, okay, um, t- talk about um, uh, the problem of evil, but you can't bring in other portions of scripture. I just want to talk about God, uh, you know, uh, killing these people. And so you, you only, only talk about that or God and slavery. So why is it that um, uh, the Christianity is this worldview idea rather than kind of what people think, Oh, it's, it's just a religion. It's just these things that you have to believe. Why, why, why do you talk about it as a worldview and why is it kind of wrong to isolate these parts? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that while I, I think Christianity is a worldview, I, I wouldn't want anyone to come away thinking that Christianity is only a worldview. Right. And, of course, we all recognize that, but I, I just want to head off that you know, concern at the, at, the, at the front end that um, Christianity uh, gives us a, a worldview. It defines a worldview for us. Um, but, of course, there's much more to the Christian faith than, than, than merely what we would call a worldview. But I think it's, it's important to talk about Christianity as a worldview for a number of reasons, because, first of all, it, um, it, it helps us to recognize that Christianity is about everything. It's not just about uh, a certain area of human existence, as though large parts of human life and experience and the things that we do can be understood independently of Christianity. And then there's some other stuff maybe to do with our spiritual aspect or something like that. And that's where Christianity comes in. So it's, but it's, more, than, it's more than Sunday from between 11 and 12. Right. That would okay. be a good way good, to good, put it. Good it's, to know. It's, good to know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's every day of the week. It's not just Sunday or some Sunday morning. Um, and so it's, it's an, it gives us an all-encompassing view of, of reality, of human nature, of how things began, of where they are headed, of what defines right and wrong, what defines human dignity, human purpose. It really is all encompassing. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians, the Christian worldview you know, specifies everything about life to the last detail, but it does give us the, the most basic presuppositions, most basic foundational convictions on which we should everything else really follows, everything of importance. And so Part of what I'm trying to do here uh, when I talk about Christianity as a worldview is to um, counter the idea that Christianity is maybe just a a sort of set of um, creedal claims or uh, a way of life or um, a set of practices, but rather it's it's a way of seeing everything. And what's more, everyone has a worldview, whether they're a Christian or not. This isn't something that's distinctive to Christianity. Uh, Islam has a worldview. Marxism has a worldview. Buddhism has a worldview. Now, to be more precise, there are different versions of each of these as well, so that you can get different 
different versions, different worldviews coming out of different understandings of these religions or ideologies. But they all make um, what some authors have called totalizing claims, claims about everything, claims about what is ultimate, claim, claims that, that, that um, uh, involve uh, an authoritative uh, sweep to them, to every aspect of human lives. And so partly what I want uh, the reader to recognize is that none of us comes to the evidence. I mean, we want to talk about evidence when we talk about truth claims. We certainly want to talk about evidence of truth claims. But none of us comes to the evidence with a, with a blank slate or with a just a neutral perspective. Uh, we're, go- we're going to be bringing a worldview to that evidence, and it's either going to be a Christian worldview, it's going to be some form of non-Christian worldview, but what that means is that we can't just talk about evidence. Certainly we want to talk about evidence, but we also want to talk about the, the lens through which we view that evidence, the interpretive grid that we use to evaluate that evidence and trying to make sense of it and fit it into our our belief system, or maybe allow it to challenge our belief system. And so I talk a little bit in the book about the relationship between worldviews and evidence, and that that there's there's a somewhat complex relationship. But what that means is that when we're evaluating Christianity's truth claims, uh, it doesn't make sense to isolate one of Christianity's claims and to evaluate it without any reference to anything else that Christianity might claim. For example, uh, taking the existence of God and evaluating that without any reference to the doctrine of creation or the doctrine of the fall, how that's affected our knowledge of God, the doctrine of redemption. You know, for example, in, in um, discussions of the problem of evil and whether, whether uh, the existence of evil and suffering is evidence against the existence of God, often that's treated in a very abstract way as though all that's at issue is just some sort of narrow theism, fairly vague theism. Well, uh, I would argue that if we're going to address the, effectively address the problem of evil and suffering, explain why that doesn't give us reason to doubt the existence of God, we shouldn't be talking about some very generic, thin theism. Rather, we should be talking about biblical theism, and not just biblical theism, but biblical theism coupled with the entire storyline of Scripture from creation through fall, redemption, consummation. Because the most robust answer to the problem of evil and suffering we can give is going to be one that draws on the entirety of God's revelation to us. I mean, why, why would we exclude any aspect of what God has given us, both in natural and special revelation, in formulating uh, an apologetic response to the problem of evil and suffering. And what goes for that particular issue, I think, goes for other issues as well. So what I'm trying to do is say that whenever we consider the claims of Christianity, we've got to consider them in, in context and in connection with the other claims of Christianity, because it's actually um, the, the, the internal coherence and cohesion of the Christian worldview is one of the strongest reasons for uh, embracing it and understanding how it makes sense of everything else. So our message is more than just John 3.16, and especially as a reformed person yourself, we always want to go, well, hold on just one second. Let me explain a few more things about John 3.16. Yeah, I mean, I love love John 3.16, but, uh, you know, in and of itself, I mean, uh, you can't make sense of that verse without without the rest of Scripture. (laughs) Coherence. So talk to us about 
coherence in terms of uh, we've just been talking about worldviews and that sort of thing. What's the uh, what's the importance of of coherence and uh, how does how would you say that Christianity is better at that if it's a good thing than uh, than other worldviews? Yeah. Well, um, uh, coherence is. We could get a little sidetracked uh, defining the term coherence, but but the rough and ready way to understand coherence is uh, to to think of a a there's a worldview or some theory, maybe a scientific theory that we talk about as coherence. Uh, it's it's parts fit together and mutually support one another. So if you have a a coherent theory, it's not just logically consistent. Because I could, I could give you three claims right now that are logically consistent, they don't contradict one another, but they have absolutely nothing to do with one another either. There's no sort of internal connection or mutual support between them. So when we talk about coherence, we're not strictly talking about logical consistency. We're rather talking about the way in which one part of the Christian worldview lends support to or explains or sheds light on other parts of the Christian worldview. And so um, to, take, uh, to take an example, take the, the, the doctrine of the, the resurrection. So we believe that Jesus um, was crucified and then on the third day he rose again from the dead, he was raised to life again. Now that, that, um, that claim in and of itself uh, will strike a lot of people as quite bizarre. Okay, so someone died and they came back to life again. I mean, okay, that's that, that's that's interesting, but um, why would something like that happen? What's the meaning? What's the significance of it? Well, in fact, the doctrine of the resurrection really only makes sense, and you can only really appreciate the force of that doctrine if you also understand the doctrine of the atonement, the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of God. I mean, all, all, all of these doctrines provide part of the background context for understanding the resurrection, that there is a, a God who is perfect and all-powerful and uh, all-knowing and all-good, who created the world and created us in his image, and we rebelled against God, and so... God um, put in plan, a, uh, put in place a plan of redemption that he had had from eternity and, and so on. You start spelling out the Christian story. And once those other doctrines have been laid out, then you say, well, now I understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. Of course he came back to life again. How could he, how could he, God, the Son of God incarnate, die for the sins of the world make a, a sufficient atonement for the sins of his people, and then stay dead. <laughs> that would be incoherent for, for, the, for, the, for the incarnation and the atonement not to be followed by a resurrection. And so once you start to, to see how these pieces fit together, uh, I think it, it can communicate something of, of the power of the, the Christian story in making sense of human history, and um, and much more besides. So so coherence and it uh, becomes evidence in and of itself, right? The more coherent, it is. That sort of thing. Yes, I, I would say that that we would ex- ex- expect what is true 
um, to be coherent, not in the sense of it has a rather sort of trivial logical consistency to it, but that it 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 is integrated, that it is mutually connected and supportive of itself. Um, and so coherence, I would say, is not a um, it's not sufficient for truth because we could we could come up with you know non-Christian stories that have a sort of inner inner coherence, but they aren't true. But nonetheless, it is one of the important indicator or marks of truth that that you are giving an account of things that is that is integrated at, at quite a deep level. Yeah, I, I always think um, the the argument goes, oh well, you know, Spider Man lives in New York. There's there's you know the the world that coheres in of itself there. But the, there are things that you bring in to understand New York and the things that Spider-Man does and, and everything like that. There, there's more that you have to bring into that story where mm. this coherence here seems to be an expanding, uh, literally universal um, type uh, understanding of, of, again, you can't piecemeal this away. You can't just put Spider-Man in New York. Right. You have to build an entire world that is different from what we experience and then have it cohere in of itself with yeah. morality and or what, what, whatever version you have there. But even, even that fictional story, that fantasy story, has to borrow large elements of context from the actual world right. in, order, in order to make sense. And yeah. so any, any worldview has to be totalizing. You can't just focus on one, one aspect of reality and say, okay, we, we, we've explained this, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that it doesn't speak to. Um, any, any worldview worth its salt really as I say, it needs to be totalizing in the, in the good sense of making all-encompassing truth claims. And that's one of the things that I really um, respected and uh, found different from uh, like Francis Schaeffer, where he would talk about um, how art and music and beauty um, kind of are, are uh, uh, indwelled, uh, I, I would say infected, but that's a, a bad word, uh, indwelled uh, with, with, yeah, with, with, with ideas uh, that we get from the scope of Christian, the, the Christian story and, and uh, how it all builds up and, you know, how even Picasso has to, uh, his mm. favorite painting of his wife is one that reflects uh, her beauty. And it's one that's not in uh, these uh, series of shapes, but it's one that reflects what he perceives. And why is that if he's trying to, you know, uh, be this uh, lack of a better term blockhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, perhaps it's a deficiency of my book, although, you know, I, I said that there was a, there was a limit to the length of it that meant right. I can say everything that I would have liked to say, but, but um, there are many aspects of human experience that I think also point us to the Christian world, like beauty, um, like our, our, our basic, their instincts about what, what we should should be doing in the world. Um, mathematics, uh, music, uh, all of these things we, we take for granted, but I think that the, the, the Christian story, if we call it that, or the Christian meta-narrative, um, gives us a satisfying way of understanding why there, there are these things in the first place and also relating them one to another. For example, in, in music, music is very mathematical, okay? So on the one hand, music can, and I'm, I'm not a musician by trade. My, my wife is the musical one in the family, but I understand enough about music to know that it's a very powerful vehicle for 
communicating uh, emotions, whether positive or negative, it has this deep ex- existential impact on us. And even, you know, even modern secular people still see the power, can appreciate the power of music. And yet music at the same time is very mathematical in the way that the time signatures are, are arranged. There's an order to the to rhythm. There's an order to the relationship between different notes in a, in a scale, um, even the frequencies of the notes between, you know, octaves and fourths and fifths, there's a mathematical regularity to that. And is that just coincidental? Um, that's, that seems like that begs for some sort of uh, deeper explanation, some, some unifying story of why, why there would be a relationship between something as systematic and uh, logical as mathematics and something as artistic and aesthetically valuable as music. That's just, you know, I'm just throwing that out there and, and, and you know, uh, I, I haven't worked this out in, in rigorous fashion. So but more, there are so many more, different more ways Christian, you can go. More Christian movie makers need to pick up your book understand it better so that we can have actually good Christian films. We can <laughs> well, be back actually, on top. We, we, we peaked I, at Sistine Chapel, Chapel and then we just let the, the, yeah. the Enlightenment and secularists have it after that. Yeah. I have some <laughs> issues with the Sistine Chapel, actually. But, <laughs> uh, well, it was all second, done with the crack of his neck for, for 15 years. So you can't deny the, the genius of it, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But, um, well, I, I think there actually are uh, Christian movies that are good. It's just that they aren't branded as Christian movies and marketed as Christian movies. And that's probably for the better. <laughs> yeah. Kind of uh, starting to close up here. Um, a question that we ask all our guests is where do you see apologetics going in the future? And uh, what, what do we have to work on when presenting the truth of the Christian, of, of the Christian worldview? Uh, you know, um, I think people point at this like downward slope of, of Christianity. And I almost view that as a positive. It's, it's almost like we're, you know, I, I'm, I'm not of, of your guys' generation and I kind of see it as almost a good thing. It's, it's getting the, the, the people that were there for the potlucks kind of out of the church and we're, we're kind of the, the, the remnant is always talked about in scripture uh, and, and uh, yeah. you know, the reformed understanding of that as well. And so, uh, you know, this, this downward trend of numbers uh, is almost inconsequential to me because uh, of my belief in what scripture says. And so I'm, I'm just wondering if you see, if you see it somewhat different with, with where apologetics is going and, and make that as open or as closed a uh, question as, as you'd like. Well, let me say, first of all, that I, I detest predict the future questions. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're just setting yourself up for, you know, falsification and uh, you have to, you know, speculate. None of us sure. really what would you like to see, see out, out of the apologetic movement? <laughs> yeah, no, that, it's, a, it's a perfectly fair question. Well, let me just speak to the point that you made. You know, I think, you know, in terms of um, what might be dem- demographics, um, we are seeing a decline in commitment to... Christianity, whether orthodox or even some sort of nominal Christianity in in the West. And like you, I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing because I think there's a, there's a winnowing going on. And part of this has to do with, with forces that are now allied against biblical Christianity that are forcing people to, to nail their colors to the mast or to jump off the boat. Um, I don't know if that metaphor works, but, <laughs> but, you know, there is a, 
there is a, a, a point at which people now in the West are going to be asked the question, um, do you really believe this? And if you do, are you, are you willing to bear the negative social consequences that, that, that go with that? Um, and I don't see that as a bad thing for the Christian faith per se. It's going to be hard for Christians. It's going to be hard for a lot of people. But then there have been Christians throughout history who have, have experienced this. And there are Christians all over the world today who are experiencing that to a far greater degree. Um, and in many respects, the, 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 the gospel is booming there because there is such a difference between the mainstream culture and the way what Christians believe and the way that they are living their lives. And so if, if the contrast between Christianity and everything else is made clearer in, in our culture and our society, then I think that's only going to be a, a good thing in terms of uh, the clarity of the gospel and the, the clarity of the Christian worldview and distinguishing it from um, um, counterfeit versions of Christianity. The, the downside of that, though, is that then, then there's more of um, a challenge to overcoming what some writers have called uh, plausibility structures. That is to say, in a dominant Christian society, people are already conditioned at some level to believe that there is a God and that we are made in the image of God and that the Bible is God's word in some sense. Um, and so, so once those plausibility structures um, are rejected and replaced with a, another plausibility structure, which is really just another way of saying worldviews, I think, um, once Christianity is no longer the dominant worldview, but there are other worldviews that come in and become the dominant worldview, um, then, then the apologetic task becomes more challenging because you have less uh, common ground to start with. But nonetheless, if we truly believe that um, that this is God's universe and that human beings are made in the image of God and designed for a relationship with God and that natural revelation speaks clearly and that God's word in scripture is powerful in and of itself, regardless of, of our weaknesses and if the Holy Spirit is active, then we have every reason to believe that if we are being uh, faithful in our proclamation of the gospel, if we're living it out in a way that um, images the character of Christ, um, and if we are uh, thinking through how to give answers to the questions that people have, then this, this gap, this chasm of plausibility structures um, isn't going to be disastrous. This isn't going to be a catastrophic change. Um, so there, there are there are pros and cons to a situation where uh, cultural Christianity is on the decline. Um, in terms of Christian apologetics, I think that we are perhaps in a better place today than we've ever been. I mean, uh, Christian apologetics, regardless of you know the intramural debates of the methodology and so forth. There is some fantastic work being done on all fronts in, um, in Christian apologetics and the, the more resources available today. So the, the problem is not that we don't have the tools. The problem is that uh, we're not making good enough use of the tools. And, and I think the church has actually lost its nerve. And I, 
I'm generalizing, of course, but I think that many Christians have lost their nerve because of the onslaught of anti-Christian propaganda and uh, belittling, you know, sort of intelligentsia of the day of belittling, belittling Christian faith. They're intimidated, but they they shouldn't be because I think a sober assessment of of where Christian apologetics stands today gives us every reason, every every confidence that uh, uh, we have good answers and good arguments. And, of course, there are always going to be uh, unanswered questions. There are always going to be um, perhaps problem areas in Christian apologetics that we continue to work on. But in terms of, of what we now know and resources we have available today, we're a stronger position than we, we ever, um, uh, ever have been. So there's lots of reason to be encouraged as, lo- uh, as well as reasons to be um, uh, apprehensive about um, where things are going to go uh, in the sh- in the short term. So maybe wise as serpents, gentle as doves, to quote <laughs> some book. Yeah, yeah, I, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Dr. Anderson, oh, we greatly appreciate you coming we on. Really we, do, yeah. uh, we've been a fan of your work. Uh, I just love seeing what you're doing, even on Twitter, which uh, tends to be you know pro or con. Uh, uh, given the day, um, uh, we were just uh, talking today about uh, the book of Isaiah, and that's really uh, encouraging to see you on. Um, wh- where else can we point people to? Uh, where would you like them to interact with you or to check out your material or resources? Yeah. Well, don't point people to my Twitter feed. If people were getting their first impressions of me based on my, my Twitter feed, that would be a bad well, it, it's, situation. It's, it's offhand because it, you can't use your your uh, your accent to uh, you know make That's us right. make to, us to lend yeah. authority to yeah. what you have to so, say. Yeah, yeah. No, to, to answer your question, I think the best place to go would be to my website, which you you mentioned earlier. The title of it is, is analogical thoughts, but the the URL is uh, prognosco.com, prognosco.com. But if people use their search engine to search for analogical thoughts or just, well, maybe not James Anderson. If they if they Google James Anderson, then they'll get a lot of pages about an English cricketer, um, <laughs> much more famous than I am. It's too common a name. But uh, prognosco.com is sort of um, a one-stop shop for, for my blog, um, some of my uh, published writings, some of my less formal writing, some lectures, audio, video. Um, yeah, that'd be the place to go. Uh, you're, you're well-respected uh, in, in the community. I haven't seen one bad word ever about you. I don't know if that's more um, my circle or, or whatnot, but when I said you were coming on, I, I had a lot of people say, uh, you know, that, that they were uh, Christianly jealous, I, I think is the, the proper term to use. So, uh, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. And uh, we appreciate you. Well, thank you for what you're doing. And God bless you as you continue. Thank you. All right. Uh, join us next time. Uh, we are covering the book, uh, What About Evil? And so we looked at the prelude and we're uh, going to then uh, uh, launch right into the introduction and we're going to figure out uh, uh, what uh, Scott Christensen has for us. Yeah. See you next time. <laughs>